What I want to do and what I've tried to do in these last few weeks is to have short little testimonies from people, uh, you even, who, um, who can tell us, you know, God showed up. I mean, God, God helped me be courageous in this moment or in that moment or maybe broadly speaking. And uh, this morning, I want to share with you a testimony from my friend Keith Hins. Uh, he had quite a story to tell. Watch this. Growing up, I could always feel God's protection, but I didn't always understand why. I knew he had plans for me, and when I knew that I was aligned with God, I could feel a peace and strength that I knew didn't come from myself. Uh, the strength flowed from the Holy Spirit and gave me courage to accomplish more than I could ever do on my own. Uh, whether it was leading home disciple groups or serving in the church or organizing outreach Christian concerts, the Lord gave me the strength. As it says in Philippians 4.13, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. And that was never more evident than the morning of Sunday, February 24th, 2019. It was a snowy morning with blizzard conditions. My wife was teaching Promised Land during the first service, so I dropped her off at church and I did our grocery shopping. After taking the groceries home, I headed back to the church by myself for the second service. I got off the interstate at Highway 151 and was waiting at the traffic light at the intersection at the top of the ramp. And when the light turned green, I started to go. Then someone said, a truck is coming. I put my foot on the brakes and stopped. Within two to three seconds, a truck blew through the intersection from Highway 151 from the west at about 45 miles per hour. Had I not stopped when I did, my car would have been T-boned. Again, I was the only person in the car. I realized God has, is not done with me yet. He still has plans for me. I can have confidence and courage that whatever I go through, He will always be with me every step of the way. Even if the times are hard, God is great and God is always with me. amazing huh yeah no doubt you know um, what do you make of that by the way what's the voice who's the voice I mean uh, an angel um, maybe God um, maybe an inner voice that he heard some you know something like his subconscious what would you say that there is actually like an unseen world out there like a, a, a world in a different level, a different plane that we don't see with our own eyes. I mean, not normally, you know. Then every so often, little blinks like that, like a voice that we hear, where'd that come from? That, that there seems to be this unseen world. And if it is there, what do you make of it? If it is, if there is this unseen world out there, what difference does that make in our lives? I mean, should it matter to us? that it's out there. What effect does it ought, it ought it to have in our lives? The Bible actually does say that there is an unseen world. I think a primary verse for this would be found in Ephesians chapter 6 and verse 12. Ephesians chapter 6 and verse 12 says this, For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. 
Whatever's happening in our tangible world, whatever's happening in, in the here and now, and in, in what we can see with our eyes and, and hear and, and feel with our hands, there seems to be some sort of connection to the spiritual world. There seems to be some sort of um, to the way in which the two relate to one another. And when it comes to our battles that we face in life, whatever those battles might be, sure, there's the physical stuff that we have to deal with. And yes, there's the emotional stuff, of course, that we deal with when it comes to our battles. And yet, ultimately, according to this verse in Ephesians 6.12, ultimately, there's a spiritual issue that we have to address. Or there's a spiritual battle as well. And to face these battles in our lives takes courage. In our current series that we're looking at as we study the book of Joshua, the Old Testament book of Joshua, we're going to see this first battle that the nation of Israel has. It's a, it's a, a military battle. It's, it's definitely a phys- it's fought on the physical realm. And yet we are going to see that in this battle, it's not just about military armies fighting one another. Uh, We are going to actually see in this battle that it's as much a spiritual battle as well. And we're also going to see how the nation of Israel was able to see that God was actually fighting the battle for them. It's a famous battle that maybe some of you have heard about. It's typically called the Battle of Jericho. Or the walls crumbling down in Jericho. But I get ahead of myself. (laughs) What I want want us to see this morning is is, uh, that yes, what they went through in their physical battle and see how the spiritual connected to that, I hope that we can gain courage to face any battle that we are facing. Anything that, that we seem to be struggling with in our lives. And learn this morning again what it means to live courageously. So, because it's a spiritual battle that we face, let's fight it spiritually and pray together. Lord, we want to thank you for this opportunity that we have to open up your word again. To think clearly about who you are. Think clearly about our lives, the struggles that we face, the battles that seem to rage, and more importantly than all of that, Lord, is that is the backdrop. We want you to be in the forefront. We want to see, Lord, you in this morning. We want to see how you operate. We want to see how we might operate with you. Uh, So, Lord, as we dive into Joshua again, I pray, Lord, that you'll help us to hear well and you'll help us to respond well. For these truths are eternal, and they have an eternal impact. And so we dedicate this time over to you again, Lord Jesus, and we pray this in your precious name. Amen. Well, the first thing that I want us to see from Joshua is that in our battles, Jesus is with us. No matter what battle you're facing, I want to remind you that Jesus is with you. Um. In the Old Testament, I don't know if you realize this, but sometimes Jesus actually shows up. Long before he was ever born, um, Jesus is God. And Jesus actually appears in the Old Testament a number of different times. And this morning we're going to see how Jesus shows up before Joshua and the nation of Israel to 
help them see how he's going to win this battle for them, this battle that we know as the Battle of Jericho. So if you have your Bibles handy, you can go to Joshua chapter 5. We are now at verse 13, Joshua chapter 5 and verse 13, it says this, Now it came about when Joshua was by Jericho, that he lifted up his eyes and looked. And behold, a man was standing opposite him, with his sword drawn in his hand, and Joshua went, uh, went to him and said to him, Are you for us or for our adversaries? Now, let me just stop before I go on. This guy is standing before him, and he's got his sword drawn, and Joshua doesn't recognize him, doesn't know who he is, and yet the Scripture here tells us that it is a man. This man is standing before him, not an angel, not some sort of glorified being standing before him. He recognized him as a man. Now look at verse 14. He said, the Lord said, uh, and you'll see that this is who this is, no, rather I indeed come now as captain of the hosts of the Lord. As captain of the hosts of the Lord, he's saying, I am in charge of the angelic beings of the Lord. I'm in charge of everything that's happening in the spiritual realm. He goes on, and Joshua fell on his face to the earth and bowed down. Which, by the way, he's bowing down in reverence to this guy. He's bowing down in, in, in worship, really, of him. Now, I only know of one other person who bowed down before an angel in the Bible. It was the Apostle John. In Revelation uh, chapter 19, and again in Revelation chapter 22, John actually bows down to an angel, and each time that he does it, the angel picks him up and says, no, don't bow to me, worship God alone. This guy doesn't tell Joshua that. He allows him to bow down before him, and Joshua says to him, what has my Lord to say to his servant? Now you'll notice in our translation, Lord is small l. It's really a translator's choice. Are we going to go small L here or large L representing God Himself? And in the New King James Version and in the New International Version, they both decided to go capital L because they believe that this is speaking of the Lord God Himself, Jesus in the Old Testament. Um, I tend to agree with them. Look at verse 15. The captain of the Lord's host said to Joshua, Remove your sandals from your feet, for the place where you are standing is holy. And Joshua did so. The place where this guy was, the presence of this guy was, ho was a holy place. That he was to remove his sandals because this, this man was holy and reverent. And as we'll see as we continue reading, he is actually the Lord himself. Look at verse 1 of chapter 6. Now Jericho was tightly shut because of the sons of Israel. No one went out and no one came in. Now this is the city of Jericho and we'll unpack that more as the text unfolds before us. But now look at verse 2. The Lord said to Joshua, this would be Yahweh, the name for God in the Old Testament, and notice it's, it hasn't changed. The person hasn't changed, whoever's talking to Joshua. Here he is identified as the Lord. Jesus himself says, see, I have given Jericho into your hand with its king and the valiant warriors. Jesus said, I'm going to take you and the nation of Israel, and I am, I am going to be with you. And by the way, Jesus is with us also today. Now, it's important in our battles that we 
maybe highlight the way that Jesus spoke to Joshua here in verse 2. Notice the tense in which he uses. He says, see, I have given Jericho into your hands. Past tense. The battle hasn't even started yet, but he's saying, listen, it's as if it's good as done. This, you will have the victory because I am the one who's going to give you that victory. Now, by the way, this is biblically true of us also. Jesus wants to fight our battles for us, and He wants to be the victor in our lives. Matter of fact, you can read Proverbs 21.31 or 1 Corinthians 15.57. It clearly says that Jesus wants to give us the victory in our battles. But the reality is, that's hard to trust. It's hard to believe that it's actually true. That Jesus is with us and He wants to bring us to victory. Especially when you're facing, let's say, cancer and you're not sure where it's headed. Trust, Jesus is with you. The future of a relationship might feel uncertain. Jesus is with you. You wonder if you're going to find the right man or the right woman to marry. Jesus is with you. The child wrestles with his or her self-image. Remember, Jesus is with you. And Jesus guides us as well. Jesus guides us. He gave Joshua the, the, and the nation of Israel specific guidance. Before they ever entered into the battle, He gave them specific guidance for this battle. Notice what it says as we continue reading in verse 3 of Joshua 6. You shall march around the city, all the men of war circling the city once. You shall do for six days. Also, seven priests shall carry seven trumpets of ram's horns before the ark. Now before I go on, let me explain the ram's horns. The ram's horns, they weren't actually ram's horns. They were metal trumpet-like instruments, but in the shape of a ram's horn. And these are actually uh, horns of jubilee or horns of victory, or horns of triumph. They were to blast that we, we won, we won, we won. That's really what these horns are all about. And as we continue reading, it says this, Then on the seventh day you shall march around the city seven times, and the priests shall blow the trumpets. It shall be that when they make a long blast with the, with the ram's horn, and when you hear the sound of the trumpet, all the people shall shout with a great shout, and the wall of the city will fall down flat, and the people will go up, even uh, every man straight ahead. So here's how it's going to go down. He's saying, this is how it's going to go down. This is the, the guidance I want to give you. This is how it's going to be laid out. Before even the battle begins. You know, Jesus spells it out for us even before we think about the battles that we might face in the future. Like, for instance, uh, say that we want to stand up for Jesus. We want to, you know, we want to do what He calls us to do, to go into all the world and tell people about Jesus or go into all the world and, and make disciples, you know, and, and be a voice for Jesus in our world. And we're a little bit uncertain about the battles that we might face ahead. Here's what Jesus has said. He said, upon this rock, I'm going to build my church. The rock of Himself. The rock of of the fact that He is the Savior of the world. Upon this rock, I'm going to build my church. And the gates of Hades, or the gates of hell, will not prevail against it. It's a done deal. You can have confidence that we're going to win this battle. Jesus is going to be the victor. 
Or you might think to yourself, well, you know, uh, I, I, feel, I feel like everybody's turned their back on me. I mean, I, I, I'm not sure about the future, and it just feels like I'm in a real lonely place right now. The Scripture says that Jesus will never desert you. He'll never leave you, nor will He forsake you. That He's here. He's near. You can trust that that's true. Matter of fact, Jesus said in John chapter 10, He said, I am the, I am the shepherd, and my sheep hear my voice, and they know me, and they follow me. So we would be considered the sheep who follow after Jesus. And then He goes on and He says this, and no one can snatch them out of my hand. My Father, who is greater than all, he says, uh, no one can snatch them out of his hand. I and the Father are one. In other words, Jesus is our shepherd and we're his sheep. We can't be taken out of that family. We can't be taken out of that fold. That he's got us. He's got you and he's got me. And no one, nothing can snatch us out of his hands. We're his. Well, the list can go on and on, but the bottom line is this. No matter what we face... Jesus is with us, and He is here to guide us. Now, we just have to stay in tune. (laughs) Stay in tune with Him. Stay in tune with His Word, making sure that we're we're learning and we're growing what the Bible has to say. If we're going to be in this spiritual battle, yeah, we've got to be people who pray, who who rely on the Lord, who lean on Him, who long to, to seek His leadership in our lives, desiring His victory in our lives. So be people who pray, who go to Him. Got to be people who are in relationship with one another. Who are strengthening each other. Who are encouraging one another. Who We need these relationships with one another under the Lordship of Christ to push us forward in following after Him. No matter what battle we are facing, if we're the Lord's children, we have to be reminded of this truth. Jesus wins. Jesus wins. The Lord has led His sheep through a lot of valleys over the generations. If you're going through a valley, He wants to lead you too. If you're facing a battle, if you're in the middle of a battle, He wants to lead us as well. I've interacted with people who have suffered great loss, great heartache, uncertainty, And I've seen people who the Lord has given peace to them in the midst of the battle. I've seen how the Lord has given them a calm when they shouldn't be calm. And ultimately, as His children, let's be reminded that He wins. He wins. And if He wins, that means we win too. Because we're with Him. (laughs) Yet even now, I think we can see that Jesus is fighting our battles guiding us, winning for us. And we will see that this is true when we, first of all, follow His lead. When we follow His lead in our lives, we can then see that He's actually winning the battles for us. Look at verse 6. It says this, So Joshua, son of Nun, called the priests and said to them, Take up the Ark of the Covenant. Now, before we read on, let me just remind us what the Ark of the Covenant is. I actually have a a description of it here. Uh, It was this... uh, golden box and it had these golden angels on the top and it really represented as it says there at the bottom line there it symbolized God's presence the priest would carry this ark and it was symbolizing that God's presence was with them 
And it says again back in our text, take up the Ark of the Covenant and, and let seven priests carry seven trumpets of ram's horns before the Ark of the Lord. Then he said to the people, go forward and march around the city and let the armed men go on before the Ark of the Lord. And it was so that when Joshua had spoken to the people, the seven priests carrying the seven trumpets of ram's horns before the Lord went forward and blew the trumpets and the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord followed them. The armed men went before the priests who blew the trumpets and the rear guard came after the ark while they continued to blow the trumpets. By the way, little lesson in Bible study. If something is repeated a lot, pay attention to it. Figure out why that is. What's with this blowing of the trumpets all the time? I mean, they're blasting the trumpets all over the place. This ram's horn thing, they just keep blasting the trumpets. We're going to unpack why that is. But Joshua commanded the people saying, You shall not shout, nor let your voice be heard, nor let a word proceed out of your mouth until the day I tell you shout. Then you shall shout. So let me lay this out for us. We've got the armed warriors, followed by the priests who are blowing the trumpets all over the place, followed by the Ark of the Covenant, where it's representing God's presence with His people, followed by the armed warriors after them. And then it says all the people can follow after that. Now, I don't actually believe that the million-plus Israelites all marched around the city of Jericho. I actually think that it was the warriors of the Israelites that were marching around the city of Jericho. Those, the regular you know, non-warrior types, they were back at camp. They were uh, allowing the, the warriors to do this. That, that's, my, that's my take on, on what exactly is happening here. And, and so let me just try to help us unpack what is going to happen, what's happening with this marching around Jericho and the blasting of the trumpets and all that. Uh, let me just show you actually the, an aerial picture of Jericho. Now, this isn't very large. Uh, you'll see these buildings over here kind of helps you to see that this area here where Jericho is and the walls of Jericho is not a very big place. It's not that huge. It didn't take them very long to march all the way around that outer wall. Now, let me show you this archaeological uh, drawing of the walls. There's actually two walls. There's this outer wall uh, with a uh, retention wall that's pretty tall. I'll show you a, a cross cut of it in a minute. And then there's this inner wall that helps protect the people inside of there. There were people that were out here. Matter of fact, we know that Rahab was actually residing on this outside wall somewhere. Uh, we read that in Joshua chapter 2. But this is kind of the image of it. Now, if we do a cross cut of it, here's what it actually looks like if you're at ground level. You see this little guy down here? He's about six feet tall. There's this retention wall here. And then the way that they built this, wall, this city was they had this lower city wall. Notice how thick it was. The archaeologists uh, have un uncovered all of this stuff. And it's at least six feet thick. And then there's this, uh, this ramp up, this, this land between the walls. And then there's this upper wall, the upper city wall, which is also that tall and that thick. I mean, we are talking about a majorly fortified city. Now, um, this whole military stuff going on here. What I, I was just real curious, because we're going to get into this this week and we're going to run into it again, this whole idea of this military encounter and how this, is, this incredibly intense battles that are going on. And, and, and we have to understand, what is Jericho all about? And so I actually, um, yeah, thank you for the map. So here's the Jordan River. The, anybody that's coming from the east and wanting to go west, Jericho was actually a military outpost to defend anybody trying to go west from after crossing the Jordan River. 
This part of the Jordan River, there's these fords where people could go across, make their way across, and then they would, the first place that they would try to defend the western uh, area would be the city of Jericho. So if you go to the next map, they actually pr- uh, defend it all the way to the Mediterranean Sea. This is like the main place that people would come across if they're attacking this whole area that the Canaanites and the Amorites were a part of, which of course down the road we're going to get to talking more and more about them. But let me just say this about what's happening here. Uh, given this battle that is going to be happening, Um, and struggling with a bit of the brutality of it, I actually purchased a book this past week, and I've been reading it ferociously this past week, but I would highly recommend it. It's by Dr. Paul Copan called Is God a Moral Monster? And the subtitle is Making Sense of the Old Testament God. It's a book worth worth purchasing, I'm I'm convinced. It's got some seriously good stuff uh, um, to look at. He talks a lot about the archaeology of, uh, of, of Jericho. And he says that actually as they have dug up Jericho a lot and have tried to figure it out, there is no evidence of a civilian population in Jericho. Get that. No evidence of a civilian population in Jericho. Jericho, this small little city, was more like a fortress And who was in there was the king, his army, and pagan priests uh, that would perform their pagan rituals. But people actually lived in the countryside around Jericho. Now, some people had some businesses in Jericho. Rahab was one of them. We'll talk about that in a minute. But the bottom line is this. Jericho was more of a military fortress than it was a city. And when the Canaanites heard that the Israelites were on the move, heading west, What they did was they brought all of their military into Jericho, probably a few thousand soldiers, packed it in and hunkered down. That's why verse verse 1 was all about hunkered down, ready for a fight. They shut up everything and they were ready for a fight if Israel was coming their way. So the Israelites started marching around the city. And you got to ask the question, why? Why? You know, march around the city and blast your trumpets. Honestly, it was to show those inside Jericho mercy. The trumpets were the trumpets of triumph. The trumpets of victory. The victory would already be won. And so the trumpets were played to warn those inside of the city that God is going to win. We have to trust in our lives that Jesus is going to win for us. And yet, the way that God showed mercy to those inside Jericho, if we want to see God's victory in our life, we have got to show mercy as well. Look at verse 11. So he had the ark of the Lord taken around the city, circling it once. Then they came to the camp and spent the night in the camp. Now Joshua rose early in the morning and the priests took up the ark of the Lord. The seven priests carrying the seven trumpets of ram's horns before the ark of the Lord went on continually and blew the trumpets and the armed men went before them and the rear guard after the ark of the Lord while they continued to blow the trumpets. Thus the second day they marched around the city once and returned to camp. They did this for six days. You've got to admit that's kind of odd. Six days marching around the city. One time, then go camp out again. 
Let's do it tomorrow one time, then we go camp out again. Now, you've got to realize those military guys, before and after the ark and all the trumpets and everything, it's because they're very, very vulnerable. They could easily shoot down at them or attack them from above. They were in a very vulnerable position. And yet, they did this for six days to keep crying out to the people in Jericho, it's time to submit to the one true God. It's time to surrender to the one true God. They knew He was the one true God. They, they were talking about, and we read it in Joshua 2, they were talking about the fact that they knew that He parted the Red Sea. And just days before, they knew that He stopped up the Jordan River and that the Israelites were on the move. They knew that, the, that Israel's God was the one true God. And so the blowing of the trumpets was to constantly tell the, the people in Jericho, listen, humble yourselves, surrender to the one true God, and nobody gets hurt. And yet they hunkered down and refused to surrender. But those six days of blowing that trumpet were acts of mercy by God. I read this past week of a, a mother who um, actually had uh, the ability to talk to Napoleon Bonaparte back when he was uh, the ruler of France. And uh, she was actually pleading for her son. Uh, he had committed a crime twice, actually, and the justice of that crime was to have him put to death. And so she says to Napoleon, she said, I don't ask for justice. I'm here to plead for mercy. And Napoleon said to her, your son does not deserve mercy. And she said to him, sir, it would not be mercy if he deserved it. And mercy is all I ask for. Napoleon said to her, well then, Mercy he shall have. And he pardoned her son. These Canaanites deserve justice. They perverted the role of man and woman. They perverted our sexuality with one another. Uh, God's design for man and woman. They twisted it. Just read Leviticus 18. These Canaanites, they did evil. They did absolute evil. They sacrificed their children in inhumane, utterly cruel ways. Just read Deuteronomy 12. They deserved God's justice. And God was offering them mercy. How about us? Has someone made you or me mad? Angry. We know in our hearts they deserve justice. But are we willing to give them mercy instead? In these battles that we face, if we're going to see Jesus fighting for us, then we, meet, we must be people who give others mercy. Jesus even said it himself in John chapter or in Matthew chapter 5 in verse I think it's 7. He said, "Blessed are the merciful, for they will receive mercy." And if you're like me, you know that we do need mercy also. If we're going to see Jesus fighting our battles, we've got to follow his lead and we've got to show mercy and third, we've got to 
stay within God's boundaries. God sets up boundaries to live within, underneath His protection, underneath His care. And if we step outside of those boundaries, we're stepping outside from underneath His care. And He was setting these boundaries for the nation of Israel. Look at what verse 15 uh, says. It says, Then on the seventh day, they rose early at the dawning of the day and marched around the city in a manner seven times. Only on that day, they marched around the city seven times. Not just once, but seven times. At the seventh time, when the priests blew the trumpets, Joshua said to the people, Shout, for the Lord has given you the city. The city, now here's his guidance, here's his boundaries. The city shall be under the ban, and it and all that, it is, in, that is in it belongs to the Lord. Only Rahab the harlot and, and all who are with her in the house shall live, because she hid the messengers whom we sent. We talked about Rahab back in chapter 2. We'll talk about her again in just a few minutes here. But as for you, only keep yourselves from the things under the ban, so that you do not covet them and take some of the things under the ban, and make the camp of Israel accursed and bring trouble on it. But all the silver and gold and articles of bronze and iron are holy to the Lord. They shall go into the treasury of the Lord. God sets up these boundaries. Says this, this is, these are the boundaries in which I want you to operate as we attack Jericho. And God sets up boundaries for us too, you know. Uh, he wants us to make sure that we live inside those boundaries. Like for instance, uh, when, we, when he, we talk about loving one another, he sets boundaries as to what that means to love one another. Like, like to submit to each other and, and to be humble with one another. God sets up boundaries when it talks about walking with Him. Walking in step with Him. I mean, in a word, it's surrendered. We live a surrendered life to Him. Allow Him to lead and not us to lead. Sets boundaries on the kinds of words that ought to come out of our mouths. Sets uh, boundaries on these words like, don't let any unwholesome word come out of your mouth. But only a word that imparts grace to the hearer. His boundaries are for us. Keep us in His protection. So that we might see Him actively working and fighting our battles for us as we live in alignment with Him. And then, if we're going to see Him fight our battles next, we must trust the Lord in the battles. Trust the Lord in the battles. Look at verse 20. So the people shouted, and the priests blew the trumpets. And when the people heard the sound of the trumpets, the people shouted with a great shout, and the wall fell down flat, or the wall fell down underneath, so that the people went up into the city, every man straight ahead, and, and they took the city. So let's, let's get this straight. So, so they're walking around, they're blowing trumpets, they all holler, and then all of a sudden those huge walls, you know, six foot thick, whatever, 20 feet high, they just fall down. They just crumble down. And it's interesting, the archaeologists have actually uncovered these walls. There's a different type of brick. They call it like a red brick. And they actually did an archaeological drawing of where they fell. So here is the retention wall. That little guy was standing right here before. And above it was this wall. And this red here represents where they've uncovered the brick wall. You see how, what happened here? The wall falls down and makes a ramp makes a ramp for them to get above the retention wall so they could climb up that hill and keep going all the way into Jericho. Isn't that fascinating? The walls crumble down so that they can get in and they make this ramp to go right in. Now look at verse 21. So they go in and here's what happens. Verse 21, they utterly destroyed everything in the city, both man and woman, 
young and old, and uh, young and old, and oxen, sheep, and donkey with the edge of the sword. Now, I read that and I'm thinking, well, that just sounds like overkill, doesn't it? It sounds like, man, I mean, they like had a rage or something. I mean, they like killed everything in their path. Well, again, Paul Copan, I think, helps to see exactly what's happening here with what Joshua was writing. He writes this. I have it up here on the screen for you. He says, like his ancient Near Eastern contemporaries, Joshua used the language of conventional warfare rhetoric. Rather than trying to deceive, Joshua was just saying that he had fairly well trounced the enemy. In other words, in Near Eastern writings, which are we have some old writings dating back this far, and typically they write about military conquests, that the, the writers would typically use hyperbole. The writers would typically use something to say, we really annihilated them. Matter of fact, we use that even in our day and age. Like, for instance, uh, now with this... New coach for the Packers and, uh, and what we've got coming up, that first game probably against the Bears, and say we totally take care of them, shall we say? We would say something like, oh man, the Packers, they totally annihilated the Bears. I mean, they totally annihilated them. Now, we don't mean like they annihilated them. We just mean that they totally, you know, the Bears weren't even a challenge for them. They just totally took over. And this is really what Joshua was writing here. And so when those walls fell, and they had that ramp, the Israelites had to make a choice now. Were they going to run up the ramp and run in and conquer the city? Were they going to go into the battle or not? Now that it's all set for them, it was go time, and they had to make a choice. Were they going to do it? Now, years ago, uh, my dad's given me permission to share these kinds of stories with you. Years ago, when I was a bachelor, um, I've told you stories about how my dad and I, we used to do stuff together, and, and uh, there was a time in our relationship where we had a major rift, a major tearing apart of this relationship, and I, I, I was mad at my dad. I was, I was angry with him, and I, um, I, didn't want to, I didn't want to reconcile. I didn't want to come back and, and do my part at making it right. But things started lining up where in many ways the walls started coming down all around me. And I'll never forget a woman in church telling me, you've got to tell your dad that you love him. And I thought to myself, that's the last thing in the world I want to do. But as I saw it in, in relationship to this story, I was looking at it and I thought, I've got a ramp made for me. And the question is, am I now going to go up the ramp? Am I going to go into the city? Am I going to go where the battle is, is hot? And am I going to try and do what God wants me to do with my dad? And I thought I had to. Didn't have a choice. So I invited my dad out to shoot pool. We used to shoot pool a lot. Invited him out to shoot pool, and I was so nervous. I mean, we barely talked. And then get, got toward the end, and I'm thinking... I got to say it. I got to say it. I know, Lord, I got to say it. And we got to that end, and I said, Dad, I want you to know I love you. Oh, that was hard to say. <laughs> and it wasn't like, you know, fireworks went off, and we gave each other a big, huge hug, and everything was just, just wonderful. But it was the beginning. 
It was the beginning of this battle of relationship with my dad. And now, fast forward 30 some years later. And I can tell you, Jesus has the victory in our relationship. He really does. I have a better relationship with my dad than I've ever had. It's open, it's honest, it's real. We can talk about anything without it being weird. <laughs> and I attribute the victory because Jesus won the victory for me and for my dad, quite honestly. What about today? Is today go time for you? Is today go time for me? If there's a battle, we know it. But if we're honest about it, God has taken down the walls. He's made a ramp. And it's time for us to go into the battle and trust Him. It's time for us to go into the battle and step up in faith. Go straight up that ramp that He's calling us to go. And we trust Him in the battle. And finally, we trust the Lord in the chaos. I told you we'd come back to Rahab. Rahab is there in the city. Now, I told you that civilians didn't live in the city. But there were some businesses that happened in the city. Rahab had one of those businesses. She's got a label on her. She's Rahab the harlot. So she had probably what would be the equivalent of like a, a tavern today in this military outpost. But she had extra stuff going on also in that tavern. And it says here that... Um, it says here in verse 22, Joshua said to the two, the two men who had spied out the land, go into the harlot's house and bring the woman and all she has out of there as you have sworn to her. So the young men who were spies went in and brought out Rahab and her father and her mother and her brothers and all she had. And they also brought out all her relatives and placed them outside of the camp of Israel. So even though there weren't civilians living there, Rahab was there with her business, and uh, instead of, like, she could have ran out of the city, she could have ran up into the hills, she could have, maybe her relatives lived outside the city, they wouldn't have been a part of the military, but in, in Joshua chapter 2, what the spies said is, bring everybody here, bring them here, and this is where you're going to be safe. And so that's exactly what she did. Verse 24, they burned the city with fire, and all that was in it, only the silver and the gold and the articles of bronze and iron they put into the treasury of the house of the Lord. However, Rahab, the harlot, and her, father, her father's household, and all she had, Joshua spared. And she has lived in the midst of Israel to this day, for she hid the messengers whom Joshua sent to spy out Jericho. Rahab. By the way, a little aside, uh, Rahab is in the lineage of Jesus. I don't know if you realize this. Um, you can read Matthew chapter 1 and you'll see her name there in that lineage. But Rahab, think about her life. Her life had to be chaotic. I mean, she's a harlot, right? <laughs> and then when the chaos increases to a fever pitch with this battle happening all around her, she is in her place, got all of her relatives with her, and what does she have to do? In all the chaos swirling around her, what does she do? She sits tight. And she trusts the Lord in the chaos. 
she sits tight and trusts, okay, these people who are following after the Lord, they said that they'd save my life and they'd save the life of my family. And I've just got to trust that that's what's, what what's going to happen. When the battle that you're facing or the battle that I'm facing is raging, when there's chaos all around us, when we're not sure how this is all going to turn out, trust the Lord. Trust the Lord in the chaos. He's with us right now. Battles are real. And we all face them. They grab our attention. They drain our energy. They sometimes consume us. And today's the day that we need to turn to Jesus. Today is the day to trust Him in the battle. To trust Him in the chaos. For our struggle, our battle, is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. And this is the place where Jesus is. He is the captain of the hosts of heaven. It's where He resides. And He wants to win the battle for us. And ultimately, He already has.